Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. President Trump is saying it's a mess. A mess. Venezuela. I want to talk to you about it today. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Um, I want to draw lessons from Venezuela. I, I know you're probably thinking why it's South America. We've got a lot of problems in this country to talk about. I want to use Venezuela as a lens to get into the problems that the Democrat Party currently has in this country, the flaws in its policies, in its thinking, in its ideology. It's one thing for people to go on TV or on radio, as many do, and say, oh, you know, Venezuela's socialist. And that's the problem. Okay, but what aspects of its socialism have led it down this path. It, it is a nightmare. It is entering the seventh circle of hell in terms of uh, failed state status here. It, it is going down the tubes. Why? Easy to go on TV. Easy to uh, tweet out some something snarky or post something on Facebook. And, oh, Venezuela, socialism fails again. It's not that that's incorrect. It's true. But why? What about it is wrong? Because when you dive into the rhetoric and the policies and the ideology of the Maduro government in Venezuela and before that, the Chavez government, you will see echoes of discussions currently happening in this country. You will see parallels. And I don't mean parallels to members of Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or the leftist Antifa fringe out at Berkeley making sure that people can't even speak. It's not just Berkeley, it's at campuses across the country, as we often discuss here on the show. No, I mean mainstream Democrat thinking. I mean the socialism and the social justice rhetoric and ideology that is the primary animating force right now in the Democrat Party, in the left in this country. There are parallels. The, the difference has to do with, of course, the mindset and history of the American people versus with Venezuela and the strength of our institutions and their institutions and where we are on the scale of status control of the economy versus where they are. But the lessons are the same and they're similar. And I, I just wanted to get into this because I think it's very easy for those who are making a living telling the American people about what's going on either around the world or here at home, whether political analysis, economic analysis, national security stuff, to just say, oh, well, it's socialism, it's failed. Why? If you understand the why, then you can understand the problems with similar pushes for state control here. You understand why it is doomed to failure the moment you have a government that is running the entirety of the healthcare system and setting prices. It may take longer if you're a wealthier country. It may be a slower slide down into oblivion if you have a more effective government apparatus. But the end result will be the same if you pursue these same policies. And it, it's not hard to find the 
the parallels and the similarities between the Democratic Party and what you'll hear, or what you would have heard at least until now, in Venezuela. It's about, oh, what is just? We need to redistribute wealth. We need to seize the assets and the capital of those who are productive in this country and give it to other people because of, well, you know, fairness and stuff. And it's the fat cats who are oppressing you, and it's those who are using the government for their own ends, the successful, the wealthy, the powerful, the undertones of socialist populism are all over the all, all over the Democrat Party these days. Everyone in America gets a fair shot at success. I believe that this country succeeds when everyone gets a fair shot, when everyone does their fair share. We are the only country in the industrialized world that doesn't guarantee health care to all people. I've been criticized for saying that, let me say it again, I believe health care is a right of all people. I will fight for a Medicare for all single-payer system. I wanted single-payer. I wanted public option. So, you know, I had some changes I would make myself. Billionaires pay lower tax rates than their secretaries. And Wall Street CEOs, the same ones who wrecked our economy and destroyed millions of jobs, still strut around Congress, no shame, demanding favors, and acting like we should thank them. Does anyone here have a problem with that? Class warfare, my friends, is a powerful tool. Class warfare is not just something that works well for politicians who are unscrupulous and want to want to attain as much power as possible. It's not just in this country. It's true elsewhere. And notions of fairness and economic justice uh, that the Democrat Party has taken up in recent years are very closely correlated with what you would have heard in Venezuela but a few years ago. Uh, Let me now transition us into what's going on down there because the failure is now completely apparent. It should be noted that this is a country that should not be in a state where there are breadlines, where there are shortages, where there's not enough milk in the stores, where somebody who is trying to flee the country would have to work two years to buy the plane ticket if they were what would have been considered in a middle-class occupation but a few years ago. This doesn't have to be a country where there are motorcycle gangs roaming the streets allied to the president and the regime, the Maduro government, beating up protesters. This doesn't have to be a country where government thugs seize companies' assets under the guise of, well, they've been exploiting the people, so we'll give it back to the people. It doesn't have to be a country that sets prices. These are the problems. This is what they've done. And it should be noted that in this country, the Chavez government, the Maduro government, which is which are both dedicated to this Bolivarian revolution, and there's all this anti, uh, anti-Yankee, anti-American talk that comes out of the regime, and they've been able to create this animosity and also this fear of external influence as a way of brainwashing the masses, brainwashing people in Venezuela so that this populism would be enough to allow the elites, the governing authorities, to have full control, no real opposition, and now we see where that gets us. It's a complete and utter disaster. This is a country that, as you know, has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, larger than Saudi Arabia's oil reserves. It is sitting atop a giant ATM machine, and yet it is now 
impoverished. And not just that, it is incredibly violent. It had, in the most recent year for which I could uh, I could find data, um, it had more murders by a factor of, of uh, 100% more murders than the United States with a tenth of population. It has 30 million people and had about 25 to 30,000 murders. It's about twice what we run in this country. We have 300 million people. So Venezuela has become incredibly violent as well. It has devolved. It is falling apart. And now you're in a situation where the current regime, the current government, has no means of reconciling this, reconciling things. They can't push back. They can't do anything to stop the reality of a complete and utter government collapse. They have engaged in crimes. Now, the regime's survival is not just a question of maintaining power and privilege, but staying out of prison. So this is why you've had judges recently in Venezuela try to declare the legislature null and void. But these are all steps down the line. They've been years in the making. In this country, the left-wing Democrat so-called intelligentsia has been, at first, uh, very complimentary of Chavez and then Maduro. And then when things started to go badly, they made excuses. They said, oh, well, this isn't it, when it, when Maduro was doing bad things, when Maduro was acting like a thug and having the government seize property and declaring what prices of goods would be. You see, this is the fundamental flaw in not just the logic of the status party in Venezuela. It's not just the the socialist kleptocrat professional thieves and thugs at the top of the government in Venezuela that think this way. You got the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party that figures if the government's in charge of the health care system, it'll be fine. The government can set prices. The government can determine what service will be. The government can determine who gets service. That might work in some way, meaning it doesn't completely collapse right away. But eventually, the price is the price. You, you see, the emotional impulse that the leftists in this country go for is the same that the leftists in Venezuela go for. They tell people who are frustrated, who are scared, who have economic anxiety, that there are other forces out there that are the reason for this. And if only you give us the power to overrun and override the free market, we'll make everything better for you. If only you allow us to take it into our hands to tell you what something costs, who should be able to have what, we will make sure the people get their, dare I I say, fair share. That was the plan. It was to redistribute the wealth of the rich. And so if you were in opposition to the Chavez regime or Maduro, if, uh, well, the main political opposition right now is in prison, but if you were somebody even who was in a position to fight back or to speak out, you became an enemy of the state. They would seize your assets. They'd go on TV and tell individuals that, well, you were part of the problem before. And once Chavez started doing this, and then Maduro took over, I believe it was about five years, um, and when they when they started to have the failures that will always happen when the government has full control of the economy... When the failures happened, they just made excuses. And they had help. They had help when it came to editorials in this country. So-called experts in politics and economics who would use whatever platforms were at their disposal. The Nation, the Huffington Post, Slate, go down the list. 
I saw an editorial in the New York Times as I was doing research for the show today, back in 2012, saying that there's no reason to believe the Chavez government's going to lead to economic ruination. Wow. Some really astute analysis there in the New York Times. In fact, they were aiding and abetting this massive theft because there is an emotional impulse that exists on the left here with Democrats, with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton pretends, although I think she's just a kleptocrat cronyist herself, uh, but she pretends to be able to tap into this. And it's resentment disguised as justice. It's authoritarianism with the pretense of a kinder, gentler approach to what everybody in a society should have. The main decisions that were made in Venezuela, of course, you had a much smaller, more fragile economy, and and I know that no comparison between nations is exact, but some of the main decisions, allowing the government to determine winners and losers, allowing the government to set prices, allowing the government to seize private property, and then, of course, rampant corruption And the silencing of opposition media to that corruption. And then the use of violence to maintain power at the top of the government pyramid. All of this has been happening for years and it has finally collapsed in a maelstrom of violence and despair and degradation. Not far from our own shores. Certainly in our hemisphere. And this should be a country with which we have strong and favorable relations. Instead, it's turning into a humanitarian disaster. The Venezuelan people are so hungry in many cases, they can't even work up the literal physical strength to go protest the regime. So many of them have been in the dark, literally and figuratively, because they don't have electricity or they're cut off from the Internet, that they can't even make it to the protest. The poorest people, because the poorest, by the way, they're always the ones that this kind of regime a leftist, Democrat, socialist, whatever, however they want to describe themselves. But this redistributive collectivist ideology taking the form of a government always promises the most to the poor, and the poor always suffer the most when the government gets its way. So the poor can't even even attend these rallies. They can't get to them. They don't even know about them. And it gets worse with each passing day. Now you have riots, violence in the streets, people dying, dozens killed this month, many hundreds more wounded. You have detentions on a, on a massive scale, political opposition in prison, 800% inflation. This summer might reach 1,600% inflation. The money's essentially valueless. The regime has no way of turning back. They know that they're going to get imprisoned and all their thugs and cronies and Fellow kleptocrats are going to be sitting beside them in cells unless they maintain power by any means they can. They don't care. Humanitarian concerns don't factor into this one bit. And the only way forward for the Venezuelan people is, yes, a radical embrace of the free market. A default on sovereign debt. The dollarization, most likely, of the economy moving to U.S. dollars. Some currency that has value that people can understand and keep. But that will mean tremendous economic pain. I mean, this is a true humanitarian disaster. And understand that this happened not just in a country that by all by all means should be relatively well off and is in our hemisphere, doesn't have to worry about some foreign power invading. But it happened in a country that has direct parallels to the primary ideological impulses of one of two major parties in this country 
And it happened in a country that was able to turn to those in, in, in America who are supposed to be speaking the truth and illuminating why this is a ruinous economic decision. Instead, no, they were, they were making excuses. It was fashionable, like wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt to talk about how Venezuela was going to get it done this time. They were going to figure it out. No, socialism leads to ruination. It leads to poverty and despair and ultimately death. And it, in fact, could happen in this country, too. Not tomorrow, not in a year, not in a decade. But if our political will is so eroded by the social justice warriors and the collectivists and who knows what will happen. The original sin of the Chavez government, which came before the Maduro government, which is the one that's in power right now and is engaged in all kinds of uh, thuggery and oppressive tactics and authoritarianism in order to try and maintain control. Um, and the the excuse, of course, of this is all the Americans' fault is, is wearing thin for people uh, who have real fear for their lives, for their safety uh, on the streets as well as uh, shortages of staples. But that brings us then to the original sin, the original problem with the government. They decided that it would be nicer, it would be more fair, it would be better if household staples, um, milk, flour, uh, things of that nature, had a set price. Now, that doesn't seem on its face like such a big deal, and it doesn't seem like it's such a terrible thing, right? You just want to make sure that uh, the working class um, would have access or, you know, uh, farmers, small those with small farms would have access to the day-to-day necessities. So they set this and they, they put this in place. Problem with that, though, is that when you say the price is artificially low, people are buying at that price, but producers won't produce at that price. And so this leads to shortages. The scarcity of basic goods. This will happen as, as, as surely as night follows day. It can be delayed. You can try to prop it up. And the reason this collapse took the time that it did was because of Venezuela's petrodollars, uh, because of the money it makes from oil. But when oil prices collapsed, now it could no longer inflate the bubble, right? Now it could no longer keep the, the music playing so that they could continue with these practices. But it's very straightforward. Um, it's just government intervention in the form of price controls that is, I mean, that, that's, there's a lot of other stuff too and corruption and uh, sure, but this was the beginning of the end. And then it turned into uh, decisions about what money could leave the country. And, and then it, from there, it just gets worse and worse because when the shortages happen for basic household goods, uh, then they try to come up with another policy to deal with that. Well, then that also creates uh, intrusions into the marketplace, and it gets worse. And these aren't, we're talking about Maduro, uh, these aren't particularly um, aren't particularly effective ways to go about, I mean, or the, the Maduro government isn't even particularly effective in trying to be a socialist statist regime, right? They're not even good at being socialists, but that's... Uh, something we'll have to get into more coming up here. Uh, team, I'm going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. As Venezuela to uh, 
our South just collapses into anarchy, chaos, and destitution. Don't forget some of the big defenders of the Venezuelan uh, government in the past, in the recent past. Buddies with Chavez, Sean Penn, oh yeah, Michael Moore, Oliver Stone, Danny Glover. Love Hugo Chavez. Loved. Um, And sure had some nice things to say about Maduro, too. That's right. But this is... There are, uh, economics is one of the good things about it at a, at a basic level. Econ 101 makes a lot of sense. Once you get to macro, then you have a lot of politicization. And there's a reason why economists with their long term projections tend to not have a great track record for predicting the future or see black swan events coming. But at the very basic level of, for example, price controls, the price of something is the price of something. Right? People either have the money and will pay for it or they don't. And to set a price or to set a profit uh uh, artificial profit limit, which is what's happened in Venezuela, um, you just create shortages. People can't produce, can't get the goods on the shelf for the price that the government says it has to be. And then you have a black market in those goods. And then that becomes, uh, then those goods become even more expensive than they would otherwise be. And, yep, it gets worse and worse. And then you have the seizure of uh, of the means of production of different assets, which the government did as well. And all of this, this is completely foreseeable, it was preventable, and it was based on social justice principles. Do not forget that. Venezuela is suffering the way it is right now because of what we would call social justice warriors, because of redistribution of wealth, because of class warfare and economic envy. It can destroy any society. And it's destroying Venezuela right now. Maria from North Carolina, uh, who is from Venezuela, wants to join us now. She's on WPTI. What's up, Maria? I'm doing doing. <laughs> it's sad. All the situations is terrible for the people over there. I have most of my family there. Um, the problem uh, that I saw here eight years ago, and I warned people because it was looking like the beginning over there in Venezuela. Um, it is a terrible situation. Uh, it's taken from from uh, Cuba. Um, right now, most of the military in Venezuela is Cuban. Yeah, the, the Venezuela has been giving Cuba oil in exchange for what Cuba has, which are doctors and soldiers, from what I understand. Uh, Venezuela is giving away... Uh, we produce a lot. We produce a lot, still producing, but it's given away to Cuba and uh, to Brazil and to Ecuador. And it's given away for nothing, while in Venezuela nobody has anything. Uh, they have taken over everybody's bank accounts, the grocery stores, the gas stations, the telephone companies that be. So when I try to send money, it never gets to my family. And you still have family there? Hmm? You still have family in Venezuela? A lot of family. I have some that have fled to other countries, but uh, when the things start getting bad, nobody can get out. Yeah, nobody. I've been reading analysis of people saying that uh, it's reached the, if you can get out, get it's been there for a while, but it, it's at a, anyone who can get out of the country should, which is a pretty terrifying prescription for a nation state, but that's that's where it is right now, but it's hard to get out. It is impossible to get out. Uh, two of my, ne- my niece and my nephew, they are in, um, in Spain. I have another nephew that is in um, Peru. 
and the rest of my family are stuck there. Uh, one of my brothers, he has five kids. He cannot get out. He cannot get out. He cannot receive anything, any help over they, there. They've, shut down, the they've shut down the land borders around it, right? And you can't fly, and, and, and the price of flights is too, people can't fly out either. No, you cannot fly. The prices go up every time, and you pay for it, and then you don't get to go out anyways. Uh, you can try to pay uh, government people to help you out. They get the money, and they don't let you out. Yeah, it's completely rampant corruption. Uh, Maria, I'm, uh, I, I, anything else you want to share with us about what you what you saw there or what you think is going on? I appreciate having somebody who is Venezuelan weighing in on the issue. Well, the situation over there is just... It was not that people didn't know. We all knew what was happening since Chavez. Uh, but the people, like here, are complicit. I, I, I want to ask you about that, actually, Maria. Did, does it, does it, as somebody who has family that's suffering in Venezuela because of a socialist uh, statist regime, does it, does it bother you in particular when you hear uh, Bernie Sanders talking about how we need to just soak the rich, take more of their money, we need to have the government in control of more? Does it, does, do you have a particular agitation with the members of the Democratic Party that borrow heavily from socialist rhetoric? In fact, we had a, a Democrat socialist trying to be the next president in this country. Yes, it is It is terrible, and like I was telling you at the beginning, uh, eight years ago when I saw what was happening, I started warning people. I said, this is the way Venezuela started. Little by little, they take a little bit, you don't even notice, they take a little bit of writing here, a little bit of right over there, and eventually you have no rights. Yeah. You no, have no it, way to protect your It's, it's uh, instructive but terrifying to go back and look at the progression of news stories. And Maria Shields High, thank you for calling her from North Carolina, and God bless you and your family. Um, it, it, you read the stories, and it was all—everything in Venezuela happened exactly as the capitalist, Yankee, American critics said it would from the beginning. And everything that the left-wing defenders of the Bolivarian Revolution— in uh, in Venezuela, I mean, there was a TV show, uh, Allo Presidente, that would go on. Uh, Hugo Chavez would go on TV on Sundays for like six hours, talking about whatever he wanted. And I spoke to somebody in my in my parents' house here in New York, who was a, a friend of the family, who was telling us that he found out that they were seizing his stuff, his family's uh, his his family's assets. By what? Because the guy said it on TV. He's like, "Yeah, we're going to take that. We're going to take their stuff." Think about that. Imagine turning on TV and someone you see the president. He's like, "Yeah, that factory. They're not making enough stuff at the cheap price we say they should make it at. So we're just going to take it because we're all about the people." That was happening in this country, and it was happening. And writers and journalists and TV pundits were saying, "Oh, you know, it's you know, it's they've got a different way of doing things, but you know, it's all about." You know, it's all about uh, social justice, and you know, it's it's good stuff. You know, it's going to get more stuff for poor. Don't you like poor people? Don't you want to help poor people? That's what they're, they're trying to do. You know, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Idiocy. I could sit here just reading you editorial uh, columns and headlines of people who think they're smart, who are like, "Oh yeah, Chavez, Maduro, they've got a, you know, they've well with Chavez, it was you know, let him do his thing. He knows what he's doing, and and don't interfere, America. That was this is from Americans." This is from people who, you know, write for the, you know, write at the New York Times and write at the, the Huffington Post and the Nation. And I was naming some of them before. Uh, but then when Maduro came in, it was okay. Well, things are a little rough now, but, you know, that was Chavez's fault. So oh, understand that, by the way. Once the government becomes so involved and is making all these decisions, 
any new version of a similar government just blames the previous government and never does anything, right? This should all be ringing some bells for us. We're like, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like what's going on here. But I, I just, I know it's, you know, there are so many of these um, people that are out there right now, and a lot of them are well-intentioned, and I like them, but they're talking about the crisis in Venezuela, and they they will say it's socialism, but they don't understand why it's... A, yeah, socialism bad is important for people to know, but why is it bad? In Venezuela, it's largely a story of price controls and then corruption around it and then seizure of private property around, and then redistribution of wealth. and it, it, It's all... It's concentric circles, but it starts with price controls. That's where... That was really the... That was ground zero of the economic crisis in this country, or in Venezuela. Um, and we should understand that it... Wouldn't happen here overnight, and I'm not saying it's going to happen here, but the same fallacies that drive a government like the Maduro or the Chavez government to say this is what the price of beans or this is what the price of milk or this is what the price of bread should be because poor people need it at that price drives a lot of the thinking of the Democratic Party in this country. Look at Obamacare. What was the huge fight with the recent Obamacare repeal in place? It was about the mandates. What are mandates? Mandates are just a means of the government telling you what your insurance policy has to cover so that it can give it to some people, even if you don't want it and will never use it. It's just redistributing wealth. Now, it's not seizing factories and saying that, you know, and making sure there's no milk on the shelves, but similar principles apply. So I just would urge you to, um, uh, as you look at this, uh, try to uh, avoid putting too much stock in the opinions of people that quite obviously, despite being on TV or on radio, have never read the Communist Manifesto, have never read Das Kapital, have no, don't, don't understand Marxism, don't understand from a political science and analysis perspective what socialism is other than just socialism bad. Okay, socialism bad, but why? And I appreciate that you joined me here because we get into the why. Jeffrey in Mississippi, WBUV, good to have you, sir. Hey, Buck, thanks for taking my call. Thank you, thanks sir. for the uh, very accurate and astute assessment of the ideological failure that is Venezuela. And I'm interested in your opinion and maybe draw a parallel uh, back to North Korea. And possibly when could we hope the same happens to North Korea? And the second part is, what is your opinion of Donald Trump or President Trump, excuse me, of his uh reaction to North Korea's saber-rattling, in my opinion, it's ignore them and they'll go away. They have no Navy. They, they, they want, he only wants attention. Why, why are we giving it to him? Okay, uh, um, a, lot, a lot of very good questions here, and let me try to give them all of the uh, response that they are due. Uh, let, let's start with the one before North Korea, or sorry, the one before uh, Trump's response to North Korea. Why isn't North Korea yet in a state similar to Venezuela? Well, in a sense, it's it's worse and it has been worse for a long time. Uh, there's mass starvation. There's mass incarceration. Uh, there are concentration camps full of political uh, political enemies, and the, the people are in. Especially as you leave uh, Pyongyang, the capital, the people are in a constant state of starvation, and it's a it is a totalitarian police state with no opposition. So. In a sense, Venezuela is a few steps down the statist pathway, even from, uh, or sorry, North Korea is a few steps down the statist pathway from even where Venezuela is right now. Um, and you have the absence of any opposition or civil society in North Korea. So it's, 
it's hard to it's hard to conjure a, a, any any means of understanding North Korea without starting from it is 1984 made real. Uh, it is a true totalitarianism in a way that no other state in the world currently is. Right. So it's it's number one in, in statism and, and authoritarianism. Uh, and then on to North Korea in terms of Trump's response to it. Uh, the problem is, yeah, that they can't beat us in a conventional fight, but they don't want to beat us in a conventional fight. They want to fire off missiles either at us or at our allies, and they figure that if they have nukes and they can nuke South Korea, then they will eventually, at some point, they'll be able to reunify the Korean Peninsula as one Korea. And to us, it all sounds crazy, but crazy is not in short supply over there. Uh, but Jeffrey Shield time, and thank you for calling in. I've, I've got to run to a break now. We will hit that break now, team, and we will be right back. I'm not really clear on why I'm being asked to leave this plane. I have a emergency ticket. I had an emergency. I had to pee. I went on tour. I had to pee. I tried to hold it the first time. I came and sat down, and I absolutely couldn't. I understand. And I'm being picked up the plane. I don't know what other, what other words could I use for what's happening right now. So I'm going to get off this plane, the plane's going to leave, and then I won't get back to my kids. A little taste of totalitarianism here at home, my friends. No, it's not the TSA. That was a, uh, an agent from Delta Airlines. Now Delta's getting some of the heat. It's not just United. And also, I think, didn't United this week, uh, a giant bunny died on a United, like a, a, an enormous rabbit, I'm being serious, died on a, a United plane, I think. And there are photos of this giant, cute rabbit, and uh, it was called like a monster rabbit or something. Not a monster rabbit, that's not what it's called. It's called a something, it's like a like a gargantuan rabbit and died. Anyway, Delta um, had, a fl- had a passenger, which you were hearing there was the audio from it. Now, anytime there's an argument on an air- in an airplane now, as you can imagine, everyone's like, video time. And also it changes the calculation, I think, because, you know, you're going to play this out, right? Uh, the guy from United just got a check, an undisclosed amount. I'm sure it was large. Um, so now you want to sort of see, are they going to try to remove me from my seat? You know, and if they just... If they take the plane back to the gate, as they did with this individual, I guess, you know, that's it. You're you're going to have to get off. Um, so this guy had to use the restroom and he was on he was on this plane on the tarmac and it was waiting the tarmac for two hours, which tarmac waiting is a form of psychological torture. We've all been there. Well, if you fly, you've been there. You're sitting there. You think you're good to go. You're in your seat. The plane does that little slow. It's kind of just moving along just a little bit. You're like, come on, just get in the air. Just get in the air. And then you stop. And then you hear the the, the engines kind of go on and off a little bit or whatever the noise is that you hear. I don't know much about planes. And you're like, oh, man. And I've sat there before. I've been worried I was going to miss an important work event because I'm sitting on the tarmac for over an hour. Um, that can happen to any of us, right? So this guy's sitting there, and he ha- he's been on the tarmac for two hours. But you know, when they get into that mode, when you're about to take off, it's like you know every you know everybody batten down the hatches, get ready for whatever is coming. I mean, they have to get you all, you know, put your tray up and everything else, because as you know, when you're flying, you don't really have much in the way of rights. You got to comply with whatever they tell you or else they do what they did here where they'll just take you to the gate. This guy had to go to the bathroom and he was waiting for two hours and he asked and they said no. And he said he was going to, he was going to relieve himself on himself because he had no choice. And so he finally got up 
because he didn't want to do that. He's an adult and doesn't want to, you know, soil himself. So he got up and he went to the bathroom and Delta was like, all right, that's it. And they took everybody back to the gate and made him get off the flight. And he had to buy a new ticket at thrice the cost of what he was refunded for being kicked off of this flight. Uh, You know, they, they have to find a better way. I mean, I can tell you, for example, I knew without having to be told or with, without being a, a science guy, we'll talk more about that coming up, but I knew that the, oh, you can't have your Kindle out during takeoff because it might electronically interfere with the cockpit. Um, no. I knew that was nonsense because it's stupid. There's no way. If that was really the case, what about somebody who just has their device on, whether it's a cell phone or a, a Kindle, you know, one of those uh, e-readers, and doesn't turn it off? I guess the, the the plane would be in jeopardy, right? I mean, you could never fly and feel safe if that were true. So that's it's idiotic. There's no way that was a problem. And once or twice I asked a, a flight attendant without being surly about it. I was like, come on. I mean, is this really? And, and they got they changed the policy because it was so stupid that they couldn't justify it anymore. Now, I, I don't know what the rule change here would have to be. But given that the public is really focused on how airlines become these become these little tyrants, Whenever we're flying with them and and something starts to go wrong and you feel like you have no recourse, and you're treated really badly, they've got to come up with a better rule than you've got to just go to the bathroom in your seat on yourself. That's not acceptable. And there does come a point, I'm sure we've all been there, where you just can't hold it anymore. And this guy was there. He'd been sitting there for two hours. Maybe he hadn't gone, you know, I don't know. Maybe he hadn't gone many hours before them. Maybe he drank a lot of coffee. Point here being that to kick him off the flight and to be all mean about it, it just feeds into... More of our anger and irritation at these airlines, which I'm hoping, although I am not, uh, I don't think it's promising, but I'm hoping maybe brings about some changes so that we are all going to be treated like normal. I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow, so I'm, I'm particularly hoping right now that they will come up with better ways to deal with this. But yeah, here's here's Delta telling an adult, sorry, you can't just get up real quick and go to the bathroom. We're not even moving. They weren't even moving. The plane wasn't going anywhere. Can't do that. Rules. Rules are rules. Um, Rules are rules is not a justification for everything. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Team, we're very fortunate and happy to be joined by Ben Shapiro. He is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, also writes at NationalReview.com. Ben, thanks for making some time. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, can you? I didn't ask you about this beforehand, but I figure you're up on this one. Breaking up the Ninth Circuit, getting a lot of talk today. Have any thoughts on this? You care much about this? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely should break up the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit presides over territory that is larger than that of any other circuit. The states that it presides over have nothing in common. It presides over Arizona and it presides over California and Washington. It's it's a ridiculous circuit. It's it's the most liberal circuit in the country. There's no reason why it shouldn't be two circuits. And uh, Congress. Is you know, has it within its constitutional power to break it up with a simple act? And what did you think of uh, Oric's opinion out of San Francisco on the executive on the on one aspect of the executive order dealing with sanctuary cities and federal funding? So I, I think that there the, the truth is that this is not as bad a ruling as the as the executive order ruling Agreed. on the uh, on on the uh, on the travel ban. The travel ban executive order ruling is just insane and ridiculous. This one actually has a certain constitutional basis because there, there is a long line of thought that says that the federal government does not get to make the state governments basically its emissaries in enforcing federal law. 
And also the president doesn't get to randomly decide when federal funding has already been allocated to a particular community that he's just going to revoke it because it doesn't like what's going on in that particular community. So it's, it's going to lead to, again, a revised executive order that is more narrowly drawn. I think that's probably the right approach. Um, but you know, again, I just don't know who's writing these executive orders because whoever is writing them is doing a pretty shoddy job, apparently. Yeah, why not anticipate what the... Uh, gr- granted, some of these judges, this guy Oric is a clearly an, 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 Obama, um, an Obama ideologue and was appointed by him, worked for him, bundled money for him, worked with uh, worked for Kerry beforehand, so he's, he's a leftist guy. But why not anticipate how these leftist judges will come at these orders to try to make it a little harder for them? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, they've got to make it, Buck, you want to be in favor of these orders. I want to be in favor of these orders. I mean, I think that it would be very helpful if they would write orders that I can defend. (laughs) If I can't defend your order, you're doing a really crappy job. And and I think that's what this comes down to. Yeah, no, I'm I'm surprised that given what happened with the first part of the travel order, I, I figured that they would uh, we would, would tighten up the ship a little bit. But so far, that that doesn't seem to be what happened. Um, let's have some fun and talk about Bill Nye for a minute, shall we? I, I've I've been uh, happy to see that a lot of people because I I took one for the team here and watched about five or six minutes of his Netflix show. It is horrifying, not because I just don't find it entertaining. But because people think that this is a scientist, this is this is not by resume a scientist. It is not by con. He is not by content a scientist. And in fact, what he says is kind of scary. Yeah, I, I'm amazed you survived watching five <laughs> five minutes, man. That was all I could do. Yeah, I mean, the, the show is called Bill Nye Saves the World. Spoiler alert: He doesn't. Um, but the the entire show is just him spouting leftist talking points in the guise of science, and that's not unusual. They have Neil deGrasse Tyson doing this on the left, and they've got Bill Nye doing this on the left. And the idea is if you don't agree with their leftist talking points, then you must be anti-science. And it's just absolute sheer nonsense. I mean, he has segments on there where he's talking about how we should basically punish people in the first world for having too many babies. Number one, people in the first world are having far too few babies. I mean, we don't have enough people to actually pay for the next generation's budget. The, the, the population of Russia is going to be sliced in half, and Russia's not even quite first world. Russian population of Russia is going to be sliced in half in the next 50 years. Population of Italy is going to be sliced in half in the next 30. Population of the United States is barely reproducing at replacement rates. If you want to make sure that a lot of people die in the third world, make sure that there are not enough people in the first world to actually continue the free market economic system that has sliced global poverty in half since 1980. So that's just, it's asinine. But what they're really worried about, of course, are our carbon emissions, neglecting the fact that carbon emissions were flat last year overall, and the fact that we are getting better with carbon emissions, even if you care about this issue, we're getting better about carbon emissions globally, given the fact that we have advanced technologies like Tesla, we have advanced technologies like natural gas fracking, which the left opposes, but which is significantly cleaner than coal. You know, they, they ignore all of, the, all of the alternative solutions presented by the market, because what this is really about for them is they want a global rule of the elite redistributing wealth and shutting down industries they don't like, and they're going to call you a, a science denier if you don't if you don't acquiesce in their in their demand. So, you know, that that was one segment that I saw. I, I thought another, I mean, obviously the most egregious segment was that Rachel Bloom segment. I mean, that was just, it was it was an offense to God and man. I mean, if you haven't seen this yeah, thing. Tell people, I haven't actually Bill seen Nye. that one. Tell everybody, what, what is this? My God, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's Bill Nye says, this is a very important segment. Then he brings out Rachel Bloom, the, the gal from My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she proceeds to do a rap about her genitals and sexual fluidity. And it is legit, like, it's one of those things where you're watching, you're like, this has to be a parody, right? And then as it goes on, you realize that it's not quite a parody. Like, it's, 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 it's so bad that it's starting to verge on the funny, and then it just gets bad again. It's, it's awful in every conceivable way. I you, mean, it's, you, it's, 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 
I was going to say, Ben, you you live in California. I live in New York. Are you from California originally, by the way? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm I'm from New York. I'm from New York City originally. And and people that I know and like look at me like I'm insane on the issue of climate change. And these are otherwise very very bright people and and you know very well read and well educated. And and when I say things to them, and this has happened recently, that's why I'm bringing it up. Um, why is it that all of the primary spokespersons for climate change talk about how the science is settled and how all scientists agree? And they're not scientists. I, and they look at me like this doesn't matter. I, I think this matters a lot, actually. I, I think if you're yeah, talking yeah. about a science movement, you should have people who actually know science as the standard bearers. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that would make a little bit more sense. But again, this is all about celebrity pop culture stuff. And again, there is you know, a significant amount of disagreement in the scientific community. Not that global warming is happening. People basically agree that it's happening. But what percentage of it is attributable to human activity? There are estimates that go anywhere from 10 to 50 percent. And how warm the climate is actually going to get over the next century. And then most importantly, even if the climate does do what the interna- International Panel on Climate Change, suggests, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, suggests it's going to do, and the sea levels rise by about two feet uh, over the course of the next century, and the temperature rises about seven degrees Fahrenheit on average across the globe, over the next century, is that a bad thing? Does that mean that everything is going to end? Are we all going to die? Is it going to be the polar bears drowning off the off the coast of Newfoundland and stuff? I mean, like, and this is the this is the the big question that that is still out there, and the left doesn't want to get into the nitty gritty of these things because the truth is that there are a lot of big questions here. They just don't want answered. They just want you to throw up your hands and say, "Okay, you experts, take care of it. You tell me what kind of light bulb I can use and what kind of car I can drive." And that's all the experts really want out of this, which is why Bill Nye, who really should know this, right? I mean, if you're an advocate for a particular position, you should actually know the position well enough to defend it. Bill Nye goes on Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is not a scientist. He's less of a scientist than Bill Nye by, by credentials, I assume. And, and he smacked him down. I mean, he, Bar- he, Barely. He, he, you know, Bill Nye science. only has a bachelor's of science in mechanic, mechanical engineering. That's mechanical it. Engineer, that, that's right. But I assume mechanical engineering is still a little bit more scientific than political science. Yeah, yeah, yeah agreed. <laughs> but in any case, he's, he, he, but Tucker gave him the runaround because Bill Nye couldn't answer basic questions like, okay, so how much is the climate going to warm? Why is there uncertainty? Is there any sort of, there's obviously dissent in the scientific community about the level of this stuff. Like, these are all questions that need to be answered on a factual level. And with margin of error, I think that it's important for people to say, okay, here is the range of possibilities that it could be and the likelihood that each possibility is true. And then we can have a discussion about public policy. But, but but I, I, I know, I know, Ben, I know you, you go on college campuses and face down both the, the you know, loony left uh, students and the professors. And, and the, the videos of it, by the way, are, are very entertaining sometimes. So thank you for that. Uh, but the kids look at you when you say this, I am sure, I can't think of a specific instance, like you're a bad person. And the same thing happens to me. I've gone on CNN and just been like, can we just admit that the IPCC report, which you mentioned before, inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, talks about ranges because they just don't know. And even saying that marks you as a bad person. People look, look at you like you're an odious human being. How, how do we get to that step? Like, why do students at... Berkeley's on everyone's mind this week, but you know any Cal school when you go speak there, why are they looking at you? Or when I'm on CNN talking about this, why look at me like you're a bad human being? If you have any doubts about this or even any questions, because it, you know it, for the same reason that they look at you like you're a bad human being when you have a gun control conversation, in which you say I'm not sure that gun control is the most efficacious way to to prevent gun crime. The the the, the idea is that the solution precedes the actual question for them. It would not matter what the problem was. The answer is always the first world needs to stop its development. And this has been true since the 1970s when they were saying that global cooling was happening, so the first world had to stop its development. Bottom line is they're not interested 
in your perspective on the science or even in varying perspectives on the science or even if you grant them the science, right? I just gave you the IPCC estimate and I said, okay, you can even grant that and it still doesn't answer the question of what we ought to do about it in the first world and whether the best possible solution might be a market-based solution. If you say to them anything except for we need a massive regulatory regime that is going to quash your ability to use carbon fuels and that is going to quash the ability of people to rise in the third world from abject poverty, if you say anything remotely resembling that, you're now a denier. Even though you're agreeing with them on the science, you're not denying anything. You're just denying their solution. But if you deny your, their solution, you're a denier. Yeah, there, there's a, a hint of, of Stalinism with the way they approach the subject in that you you have to, it's not just a question of agreeing to an extent. You have to agree enthusiastically without without reservation and at all times or else you're the enemy. You're a counter-revolutionary and you have to be destroyed. Uh, I want to ask you, Ben, because we're, we're coming up here on 100 days and you know I've been saying, look, 100 days is artificial. We get it. But it, it is something of a barometer. We could look at this and say, how are things going? You were uh, very willing to be critical of Trump in the run-up to uh, the election and have been calling balls and strikes since. So you're not somebody who just says everything Trump does is great. Uh, what do you think so far? Uh, so uh, I think that it, it's hard to tell, uh, you know, with, with one grade where he is. And you also have to determine what your yardstick is. So is, is the yardstick what he should be doing or is the yardstick Hillary Clinton? If the yardstick is what Hillary Clinton would have been doing, A+, plus, right? Because a dead horse would be A+, plus compared to what Hillary Clinton would have done in office. But if the yardstick is what he could be doing with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, I'm giving him a C. Uh, we've had no major legislative accomplishments out of this administration. He's blown Trump care up. Uh, the, the, you know, on foreign policy, he's obviously a sea change in terms of his general view of the military, but I, I don't really see a coherent view of foreign policy coming out of the administration yet, although that may change, only because I think it's too soon. I, I just don't think that we know what's going to come out of him. And the first hundred days is not indicative of anything except for a vision for what the administration is going to be. And given that there is none coming out of his administration, that's troubling. In the first hundred days of Reagan, there were no major pieces of legislation, but Reagan spent the first hundred days talking about why a smaller government was a better government, why a smaller government was better for Americans. Trump has spent the first 100 days alternatively tweeting silly things uh, and then saying some nice things and some good things. So I don't have a good read on him. I wish I did, but I don't think anybody's going to get a good read on him because I don't think Trump has a good read on him. I think he gets up in the morning and watches Fox and Friends, and I, I think the most powerful Steve in the country is not Steve Bannon, it's Steve Ducey. All right, Ben Shapiro, editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, and check out his latest at NationalReview.com. Ben, great to have you. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Uh, 844-900-2825-TEAM. We will hit a break. We will be right back. I wanted to uh, talk to you a bit um, about what's going on here with the, uh, just a, a quick update on the Russia investigation. Um, and you've got, of course, competing narratives of what's happening right now. You have Representative Steve King, because this is all so politicized, as we knew it would be. you got Steve King out there, and he's saying, well, I'll let you hear from Steve King what he's saying. I'm not aware of any evidence so far of any collusion between the Trump campaign and uh, any, any Russian agency. And Carter Page, my understanding is that Donald Trump has never even spoken to him and never had a conversation with him. I think he was at maybe one meeting of the campaign. And uh, so I, again, uh, you know, whatever he's saying, he's saying on his own. That is Okay, so Carter Page, I've said this to you before. And by the way, I, I haven't been avoiding the subject on the show because I don't like to talk about it because it upsets people who support Trump. I know that's a calculation that some people on other shows make or especially on TV these days. 
but I just don't find that there's that much that advances the story. A lot of stuff we see day in and day out is a rehash because the Democrat-friendly outlets, the left-wing sites, the left-wing channels, want to just keep the story alive. So they, they just need to have like a daily Russia update. And so they go, oh, new new evidence of no evidence of Russia-Trump collusion. It doesn't matter, right? Breaking news, no evidence yet found of Russia-Trump collusion. But they just need to keep it out there and up there so people think about it and talk about it. And it's a part of our conversation all around us. Um, but as there's uh, there are new developments, and I'll talk to you about it. And next week, I th- yeah, next week, there's going to be some hearings on Capitol Hill about this. I'm guessing we're not going to learn much that's new on, from those, by the way. I think it'll be it'll be a, a few piles of uh, charred nothing burgers with cheese, uh, and that will be it. Uh, we won't find out that much that's new. But there'll be tidbits. There'll be little sound bites or moments that the Democrats can cherry pick from the greater whole and uh, suggest that that's suggest that it is suggestive of something else, right? You can expect this. Take this to the bank, my friends. Even if nothing new comes out of it, they will create a narrative uh, in which they are, at a minimum, just asking questions to keep the, oh, we're just got, we've got more questions. Okay, we didn't get what we wanted that hearing, but we got more questions. And they're going to ask questions that are very leading, and, and they're going to put them out there as though they're fact, right? You know, well, well, why is it that Carter Page? I hadn't heard of Carter Page. I was a political analyst at CNN during the election. So you can imagine I heard a lot of stuff about how terrible Trump was and everything else. For, you know, sitting in the green room, um, with a few exceptions, some of my friends that we've had on this on the show, in fact. But sitting in the green room, you, you tend to get a lot of people that are just, you know, they're on the phone talking to a friend. Oh, Trump is the worst. Trump is so bad. I hear I heard all the bad stuff about Trump. Never heard about this Carter Page fellow. Know nothing about him. And people are oh, Carter Page, he's a, a Russian stooge, or he was working, he's a Russian agent, or he's a... I'm like, okay, well, what would that even mean if that were true? Let's say, the, let's say theoretically, the FSB was like, we have a very uh, important plan for you. You'll work with um, the, the Trump campaign, and we'll uh, make this very worth your while. Um, let's say they did that. Well, maybe Carter Page is in trouble. Doesn't mean anything about the Trump administration. Doesn't mean anything about Donald Trump. You think Carter Page has the kind of, uh, in the Arab world, they call it wasta, which is like clout. It's like, uh, you know, having um, sway. Uh, you, you think Carter Page has the wasta to get the Trump administration one thing or the other? I haven't even heard of this guy. But they talk about him like he's a major part of things. And, and all you've, I played the King audio for you before from Representative Peter King, who... Is a uh, is a Fox News pundit moonlighting as a congressman, from what I understand. Oh snap! Um, but then you've got uh, Blumenthal. I'm just kidding. Peter King is fine. Don't send me angry emails. It's a joke. You got Blumenthal, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, and he's taken the other side of this in the lead up to the testimony on Capitol Hill next week about Russia, Trump collusion. Oh my! General Flynn broke significant criminal laws that will not be investigated and prosecuted unless there is a special prosecutor. We can't count on the attorney general or his deputy who report to the president of the United States and the White House to do that job. 
Uh, don't appoint a special prosecutor. You notice Democrats never appoint a special prosecutor, right? <laughs> they 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 avoid this at all costs. They have some bad history with that. They don't they don't want that. But they always want Republicans to appoint a special prosecutor now. Oh yeah. Oh, because they just want to get to the bottom of things. Look, the the Flynn situation is it, it's still being determined. Doesn't look great, uh, even if it's not illegal. And I, I, what I read in the Wall Street Journal today, where there's a lot of reporting on this, is that he did disclose some of the foreign payments, I believe, to DIA, but not to the not to the Army, not to the Pentagon, as he was supposed to. That's what the Wall Street Journal is saying. Um, but even if that is uh, the case, I still don't think that um, the situation should be such that uh, he was taking these payments, um, taking these payments from places that he, you know, I, I wouldn't go on RT. I, I wouldn't do that. So that was, a, that was a lapse in judgment, and he should have disclosed it. So whether it's criminal or not, it shows a lapse in judgment, but the Trump administration fired him. And I think they fired him not just because he lied to Pence, but because they knew that this guy had made some poor decisions. And when, especially people that have had a career in public service, no matter where they are, and all of a sudden some real money starts coming in, people can make some faulty decisions. All right, doesn't make him a terrible guy, doesn't make him a criminal, just means that showed poor judgment. Um, but they're making this into a much bigger deal already than it is, and they're saying it needs to be a special prosecutor. Special prosecutor for what? The guy already got fired. He may have left something off on a form. Well, was it criminal or was it a disciplinary matter? Because if a disciplinary matter for the military... Why would there need to be a special prosecutor for that, right? But, again, they just want to turn this thing into the Russia Inquisition. We'll be back in a few. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. John in Mississippi, WBUV. What's going on, John? Buck, I agreed with, with everything you said there about the Russia connection with Trump and uh, the fact that this guy, Carter Page, is somebody that's never not even uh, a part of the Trump campaign. Um, and But I, I stumbled upon this idea. that the re- I wonder how this all got started. How did the public become aware that the FBI was investigating the possibility that some of the people associated with Trump may have been targeted for recruitment by the Russians. I mean, that's a really vague investigation based on nothing, very little. And uh, how did the public find out about this? Why- well, there have been a lot of leaks. There have been, been a lot of leaks, John. You know, there's there's a lot of dirty dirty uh, politics and, and people are playing uh, dirty stuff here. Um, that's, that's what we see happening. So, and with, with Carter Page, I mean... How how dumb would you have to be to think you're going to get in bed with the Russian intelligence service to try to sway the Trump administration? I mean, you're going to betray your country for for what? And possibly spend a long time in federal prison for what? Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like he's a communist sympathizer and he's doing this out of some ideological sense of uh, allegiance. And, you know, that, that's what used to happen during the Cold War. So why would Carter Page do I mean. It just, it just doesn't add up. You know what I mean? It just doesn't add up, John. But th- Carter I'm sorry? Page, as I understand it, Carter Page somehow deals in finance, and he, he does deals involving petroleum and natural gas 
from Russia. Yeah, he's a businessman. I got news for you. If you're going to do business in Russia, you're going to come across some government people and probably some people who work in the intelligence service in Russia, and you may not you may not even know it. You know, I mean, that, that's just the way that it works yeah. over there. You know, it's a it's a huge. Uh, there's a, they have a huge intelligence service, and they have a lot of people running around and engaged in all kinds of activities. So, John in Mississippi, uh, great to have you. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, let's talk about some immigration, my friends. Uh, we have our buddy Mark Krikorian on the line. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Mark, great to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So we've got a few, thi- a bunch of things to go over. Big week in the in the realm of immigration, immigration enforcement. You've got Secretary Kelly of the Department of Homeland Security announcing the establishment of the well, the VO, uh, VOIC office, uh, CE, I assume. Uh, play- we are opening an important office today as part of the ICE uh, family. Uh, we call it the voice office, the victims of immigration crime engagement. ICE created the voice office in response to our president's executive order entitled Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States. But the name fits. We are giving people who are victimized by legal by illegal aliens for the first time a voice of their own. All crime is terrible, but these victims, as represented here, are unique. And they're all too often ignored. Mark, what do you think about this? No, I think it's a good idea, and it's long overdue. Uh, you know, the uh, Donald Trump was the first presidential candidate ever to sit down with these families who's loved ones had died because of illegal aliens, and just let them tell them their stories. No other politician had ever bothered to do that, and shame on them. And um, he really made this, I think they really, their story is really connected with him. And, you know, the reason is not just that their victims, you know, their family members were victims of crime. That's a very unfortunate thing, but it happens all the time. It's that people who shouldn't have been in the country, some of them people who shouldn't have been here and sanctuary jurisdictions let go instead of hand over to ICE uh, were victimized by people. And that's something that's inexcusable, and the government actually bears some responsibility there in a way that it doesn't necessarily for, you know, just an American who's here already who commits crimes. Uh, What did you think of the decision? Uh, We've talked to you on this show at some length about sanctuary cities and the realities of the law and what the federal government can and can't do. Um, what, what did you think about the, the ORIC ruling from San Francisco? Yeah, it doesn't really have that much effect. I mean, it's a political maneuver by a showboating liberal judge um, because the uh, only funds, federal funds, that the administration is moving to cut off now are Justice Department, certain Justice Department programs, three of them. And the judge in his ruling said, well, of course they can cut those off because the strings were attached to the grant to begin with. The judge said, yeah, but if he does anything else, then then he can't do that. So, I mean, it's a mean, the, the case should have been dismissed because those counties, San Francisco and Santa Clara, which is where Silicon Valley is, haven't had any money cut off. There's no basis for a lawsuit. This whole thing was just political showboating by opponents of Trump. And I think a lot of the people who, you know, the anti-Trump people who looked at this and said, yeah, great, thank you, are going to be a little surprised when the Justice Department cuts off 
these funds from these jurisdictions, a lot of people are going to say, hey, we thought the judge stopped that. His ruling specifically says explicitly that obviously those programs can be cut off. So there are some places where there will be reductions in funding, but those are pretty minor in terms of the size of the, 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 the dollar amount we're talking about here, right? Yes, they are. And there's a whole body of, juris- of jurisprudence on the federal government not being able to use funding uh, cutoffs in a way to coerce jurisdictions in, way- in areas that don't relate to the funding. For instance... Remember back in, this was Jimmy Carter administration, I think, they made the states all cut their speed limits to 55 because of the oil crisis. This may have been before your time. But it was related to highway funding. They said, look, if you're going to get the highway funding, you have to do this. Well, highway funding, speed limits, it's the same thing. Whereas if they had said, we're going to cut your education funding off unless you lower your speed limit, that's something the courts generally won't allow. And that's basically what the judge said the administration couldn't do, except that the Justice Department lawyers at the hearing said, yeah, but we're not even planning to do that. In other words, what are you talking about? Um, tell me about, the, there, there was a, uh, a a dust-up I saw it last night on social media about the, uh, the level of enforcement that the administration claims. This is about a, a court case that's, be, that's playing. Uh, did you see this? And they said, uh, you had John Roberts, Minister of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, asking the government lawyer, uh, so you're telling me if somebody on their naturalization application is asked, have you ever broken the law, and they, uh, you know, they, they got a, a speeding ticket some years ago, you know, whatever, I don't know, they got a parking ticket five years ago and they paid it, but they said no on the form, they could lose their naturalization status, but the government, uh, or the government lawyer said yes. Do you know, have you seen this? No, I, I mean, I saw reference, I did not look into the case. This is about what they call denaturalization. Right where because if you're a native-born citizen, it's very difficult to lose your citizenship. You basically have to go in there and say, I don't want my citizenship anymore. If you're a naturalized citizen, it's different. Um, And if you're shown to have committed fraud while you were naturalizing. um, Now, I have no idea whether a parking ticket counts as, you know, or not mentioning a parking ticket counts as fraud or not. But frankly, we, we really do need to be a little more aggressive in denaturalizing people because under the Obama administration, they wouldn't even denaturalize terrorists. Uh, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's, we need more of that, quite frankly, rather than, um, you know, basically let people who are naturalized citizens but lied while on their, you know, paperwork and everything, lied about it, and then just let them get away with it. Now, the wall loomed large in discussion, at least this week, and it looks like there will not be a wall in the short term. Here's uh, Budget Director Mulvaney. Is President Trump willing to sign a government spending bill that does not include that money? Yeah, because I think the bill, at least the the offer that we received from the Democrats the last couple days, uh, included a, a, a good bit of money for border security. The Democrats so they go to the mat and shut the government down over the border wall, the, the bricks and mortar. But there's a lot of things we agree on, both parties do, in securing the border. And it allows the president to follow through on his promise to make that border more secure. This bill is just for the last five months of this year. We're actually half, almost more than halfway through fiscal year 17. We're only talking about through the end of September. The discussion for what to do in fiscal year 18, which starts October 1st, that discussion actually starts as soon as this bill is signed. 
kind of unsatisfying that we've got the Trump administration, uh, Mark, coming out here saying, well, don't worry, we'll get we'll get tough on this one in October. Uh, what, what was your on, on the policy side before we get into the wall's effectiveness? Wh- how did you think the administration handled this whole showdown over wall funding? Yeah, I think they handled it badly. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of, you know, the wall talk. I mean, we need border uh, improvements. There's no question about it. But I think there are other things that are more important. But frankly, having made it his marquee issue and a month ago, having asked for an extra billion for the next five months to do the prep work and get started on stuff. Backing away just because Chuck Schumer says boo uh, is a bad sign because do they really think that the Democrats won't shut the government down in September over the wall funding? Of course they will. Um, uh, They're going to have to have this fight sometime. And, you know, I mean, I'm hoping maybe they have something more involved, a sort of more political full-court press against the Democrats' plan for September, but I'm not encouraged, quite honestly. I think, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer ate the administration's lunch on this one. It's a small issue, but it's a really important sign. I think the Democrats are going to smell blood in the water, and it's going to be harder to get things done, immigration or not, in the future, because they caved on this marquee top shelf issue for the president it's not a negotiation no wall look <laughs> democrats have always there we go. been for border chuck, security we chuck heard think. his name mark chuck heard his name he, he comes in right away it's uh, the ears are burning yeah makes makes me sad on the inside uh but so well, what's the truth about how how much of a difference a wall now a wall is shorthand, right? We've we've had this tends to happen in the Trump administration, just like you know eavesdropping and wiretap, and you know, the, people normal people can use these words somewhat interchangeably, just as a manner of speaking. Wall for me, I think for a lot of people, fence, barrier, uh, wall, all of these go together in physical prevention mechanism for illegal crossing of the border. How much of a difference would it make if they got this thing up and running or up and standing? better way yeah, to put it depends where you put it obviously and how much of it that's going to be and all that but you know it matters a lot i mean we have almost two thousand miles of border with mexico and of that two thousand miles about two percent 40 miles has double fencing two layers of fencing with a road in between the kind of thing that um the congress thought it was requiring 10 11 years ago when they passed what's called the secure fence act so there's a lot of improvement that still needs to be made on the border. But we still actually don't know what the administration is thinking as far as how much wall are they talking about. I mean, there's 700 miles of something, some kind of fencing on the Mexican border, about a third of it. But half of that is kind of Mickey Mouse, what they call vehicle barriers. They're like three feet high, four feet high. They're designed for trucks, keep trucks from driving over. But your grandma can hop over. I mean, I got pictures of myself clowning around on them. They're not anything that's going to keep a person out. And then there's about 300-something miles of real fencing. You could even call it a wall. I mean, look, if something is a metal bollard filled with concrete and there's two or three inches separating it from the next one, is that a wall or a fence? Down there, everybody calls it a wall already. So um, we definitely need more of that. But it's going to be harder to build, I think, than the president thinks, because the place where we have the least wall is on the Texas border. And that's a river, 
mostly, so the terrain is different. It's all serpentine back and forth. It's not a straight line like in Arizona. And it's all privately owned because Texas came into the Union as an independent country, so there's no federal government land practically in Texas, unlike Arizona, where the federal government owns the whole state. So it's, they're going to have to buy every single acre and inch of land. It's going to be much more difficult, I think, than the president thought. What happened with the Secure Fence Act, by the way? Yeah, good question. Uh, it said that uh, the Secure Fence Act said the administration was supposed to build roughly 700 miles of double fencing. Um, and they, they actually laid out, they kind of micromanaged because they didn't trust Bush, you know, 10 miles west of this place to 10 miles east of that place. I mean, it's kind of spelled out pretty detailed. The reason it didn't happen is because shortly afterwards, they stuck in a sentence in a thousand-page appropriations bill that nobody noticed that said, oh, yeah, and the Homeland Security Secretary can kind of do whatever he wants, doesn't have to do double fence if he doesn't want to. So basically, the bill that got the press was looked tough, and then when everybody's attention moved on to something else, they stuck in a little loophole that negated the whole thing, practically. Huh. So they all they, they voted for a fence, but now a fence or a wall is, is, at least for Democrats, and I think some Republicans, unthinkable, an unthinkable atrocity. So we'll have well, to it, it's immoral, according to Nancy Pelosi. She actually said that a wall on the border is immoral. I have no idea where she's even coming from with that, but it really, they have become kind of kooky on this issue. Yeah, Pelosi, definitely, yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, there you go. Mark Corian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, check out centerforimmigrationstudies.org. Uh, uh, Mark- oh, CIS.org. So, sorry, thank you. CIS.org. And Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Buck. Team, hitting a quick break. We'll be right back. Dr. Phil getting in on the free speech defense. I never watched the show, but I know about this guy. Play it. The test of the First Amendment is that you fight to protect the rights of those that talk about the things you hate the most. Mm -hmm. And that's not what's happening here. I'm really bothered by this. And you say, well, why are they doing that? It's just another another measure of entitlement. They, They just feel entitled to shut down people that disagree with them. Dr. Phil, much better grasp of the First Amendment, its implications, and the need to defend it than senior members of the Democratic Party, than Howard Dean, than most campus professors, it seems, these days, or at least a lot of them. Uh, Dr. Phil, laying down some some truth on the the First Amendment there. By the way, there was a New York Times article earlier today that was talking about the Berkeley-Coulter speech cancellation situation, and... It made reference to how conservatives are putting themselves into these or are like willingly injecting themselves into these tense situations. The, the implication being that, you know, what is it with these conservatives going on campus and knowing they're going to just rile up all these students? It's just so unnecessary of them to be sharing ideas and thoughts and trying to educate these students. This is just a place that I, I cannot have. I, I cannot see eye to eye. I cannot understand the mentality that many of these progressive, uh, all-Democrat voter college students have, um, that they don't want to even be exposed to the other side's ideas. I always felt like, and maybe this is why I became an intelligence officer, but I wanted to know what the what the enemy was thinking. Not the people that are Democrats are the enemy, but you know what I mean. I want to know what the opposition, I want to know what your opponent in a debate, in an exchange of ideas, and on the battlefield of ideas, I want to know how they're going to fight. And the only way you can know is if you're exposed to it. 
You know, you can tell when you go on TV and someone's trying to debate a point and they come up against uh, a line of argument that's very effective that they've never encountered before because they get the whole, and there's, you know, there's a lot of crosstalk. Usually, I don't know about, it just starts yelling. And it's like, you know, it's like uh, a couple of Muppets screaming at each other on the screen. It just turns into mayhem, right? But it's much better to be exposed to the arguments that you will face before you have to face them. And I would think that if progressives were so serious about being activists and social justice warriors or wimps, depending on what you want to call them, they would at least want to know the enemy, but they're too scared to even see or hear the enemy. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, everyone. We've got our friend Sean Davis on the line. He is co-founder of The Federalist. Check out his latest at thefederalist.com. Mr. Sean Davis, good to have you, sir. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, we talked a bit to uh, Matt Walsh last night about ESPN, and I have to rely on you real Americans who have cable and watch ESPN to tell me what's really going on, because I only catch the clips that make their way into the realm of politics because ESPN analysts seem to think that they're actually social justice warriors talking about politics sometimes. But you've got the real story behind this, and it's not entirely the left-wing tilt. What happened at ESPN? So there, there's a bunch of factors that have gotten ESPN uh, to where it is today. The biggest one is that its uh, financials just aren't working the way they used to. Its business model is kind of in uh, the process of being blown up. And the reason for that is they make their money uh, by basically selling access to us cable viewers uh, to big games and uh, big leagues and big events. And they do that by buying rights to you know, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, college football, you name it. And those rights cost a lot of money. I think uh, Clay Travis over at Outkick estimated that by 2021, ESPN will be paying $8 billion a year just for the rights to these major sporting events. And, and ESPN's problem is that that's really a ton of money. That's way more money than that ever cost, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And combined with that, uh, ESPN's subscription revenue from cable subscribers is going way down. Um, they've lost, I think, 12 million cable subscribers in the last six years. And even on top of that, uh, their ratings are down. Their viewership is down. So you have this mix where ESPN's costs are fixed and getting higher and higher, and their revenues are, are risky and uncertain, and they're declining. And that's a recipe for a huge mess. Yeah, unless you're running a massive, well-connected solar energy company under the Obama administration or something, that's a recipe for failure right there, <laughs> right? More, more, more cost and less revenue. This is not, not a good thing. Um, I, I want to ask you, though, about the way that they bundle channels, because everyone listening, I think, should know this, and it doesn't often get talked about, that you know you, you want ESPN, but what they do is is make the cable providers pick up a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Like, I don't even know what these channels are because I don't have cable, but, you know, channels about making floral bouquets and buying jewelry and, I don't know, kids shows maybe. Uh, Disney makes people or makes the cable providers not just take ESPN, but a whole bunch of stuff, right? Yeah, so it's interesting. So when you get cable, you pay one fee to your cable company for for the programming, then you pay like, you you know, 50 other various fees and taxes and whatever. But you're paying, we'll say, 50 bucks a month for your cable channels. Well, what the cable company is doing is paying uh, small amounts of money to each of those networks and the owners of those networks. So I think for ESPN right now, they charge about seven bucks 
a month uh, from cable providers. Which is really high. It's, it's, it's really high. It's like orders, uh, it, it's several multiples higher than like the next highest. It, it's far and away the most expensive channel to have. But that's not all. Uh, Disney ABC, which owns ESPN, also forces cable companies to carry a whole slew of other uh, affiliated and owned networks. So if you want ESPN, you don't get to just have ESPN. You're going to get Lifetime, Lifetime Movie Network, the History Channel, Disney, Disney XD, Disney Junior, Vice. So what you end up with is you're paying a ton of money, way more than just what the cost of ESPN is, to have ESPN. And so I find it fascinating when ESPN execs come out and say, no, 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 we're just the victims of cord cutting. This has nothing to do with our programming. We're just victims of change and cord cutting. It, it's so disingenuous because ESPN goes, on, goes into the front end of these cable companies and says, you know what, we know people are getting cable just for ESPN. And if you want to have them do that, if you want them to get your cable package with ESPN, you're going to buy this other stuff. So ESPN, ESPN needs to be honest. You know, they're using the uh, value of ESPN on cable to extort these companies into paying fees for all these other networks. But then on the back end, they're going to pretend that cable cutting has nothing to do with the ESPN and nothing to do with the cost of carrying all these other bloated networks that Disney demands be included. Uh, It's totally disingenuous. And the social justice tilt of ESPN now, the the left wing, I I mentioned yesterday, I've heard it called MSNBC with sports, which I find funny, Um, and I'm told it's pretty accurate from people who watch it a lot, and that's been a change from what it it used to be. There was something about a poem, I just saw this today on some social media, I didn't get a chance to check up much on it. What what happened with this poem, or or, what what was that all about? Oh, goodness. So if you think ESPN is bad, you don't know what you're talking about until you see ESPNW. So that's their, their women's network. And the day before these mass layoffs, uh, ESPNW published on its site five poems about feminism. Because that's, like, that's sportsy. People who enjoy sports ball love poems about feminism. And one of these poems was an homage to a cop killer fugitive who murdered a cop in 77, was convicted in 79, escaped from prison, and then fled to Cuba. So that's the kind of content that ESPN apparently thinks uh, its viewers want. Now, like, if this convicted cop killer fugitive set some sort of record paddling time escaping from prison and getting to Cuba, maybe I'm interested in that as a sports story. But that's not how they pitched it. They pitched some garbage poem praising her after she killed a cop and then fled. Sean, um, I, I want to ask if you have any sense that you want to share with us about Trump's. I know I'm, I'm switching gears here for a second. Uh, Trump's first hundred days. Uh, it technically happens, I think, Saturday, right? But everyone's doing this now, even though we all recognize that it's an artificial, uh, artificial parameter for the analysis of an administration. But you, you, you got to give a grade somewhere, right? So, h- how would you say this is going so far, and what does it make you think going forward? Well, that is, it's a great question, and I think the answer depends so much on where you're coming from. If you're based in D.C. or New York and you don't like Trump and you love and spend all your time talking about process and this and that, you'll look at this and say, well, it's been a total failure. He's, been, he's messed up an executive order, and he's, it's, been a, it's a total mess. But if you voted for Trump because you wanted someone who's going to go in there and mess stuff up and change how business was done and get a conservative Supreme Court justice nominated and approved, I think you have to look at what he does and say, you know what, it's been pretty successful. He's got Russia on its heels. Russia has no idea how to deal with him. Uh, He's scared the crap out of Kim Jong-un by going after Syria and enforcing a red line that Obama uh, was too cowardly to enforce. 
you look at that and you see guys like uh, James Mattis. Uh, you see H.R. McMaster as the National Security Advisor. You see Rick Perry and Scott Pruitt. I mean, the guy's cabinet is stacked. He's getting results. He got a Supreme Court nominee confirmed. Uh, if you were even casually uh, interested in Trump versus vehemently against him, you got to look at this and say, you know what? This is pretty good so far. Has it been perfect? No. Did you screwed up stuff? Yes. But so far, I'd say it's looking pretty good, especially what are you, compared to what Hillary would have done. Yeah, and, and what that's what I've been saying. Every day where I wake up and I'm a little frustrated, I, I think they backed off on the wall a little too easily, but I, I understand that you know, they, they think they'll have more leverage going into the uh, the budget negotiations in the fall. I, I get that. Um, and it's, you know, it's not over and it's we haven't had a wall in a long time. Uh, but it is true we have not had Hillary Clinton. We do not have... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, part two now on the Supreme Court. Um, so there's a lot to be there's a lot to be thankful for. It's like it's like Trump Thanksgiving. Uh, but going forward, two issues loom very large in my mind and everyone's minds. I'm, I'm sure that's paying attention to what's going on in the country. Uh, Health care t- and tax reform. Are you optimistic? Where, where would you put yourself on the on the on the scale? Uh, I, I have followed politics too long to ever get uh, my hopes up when I see people talking about tax reform. I'm just super skeptical they're going to pull that thing off. Who knows? I could be wrong. On Obamacare, I think that's probably been the biggest failure and the biggest disappointment so far. But I'm not sure I even blame it on Trump. Uh, The whole bungling of this thing, the botched uh, rollout of the replacement bill, I I put that squarely at the feet of Republican congressional leadership. They've had years to figure this out. And they whipped this thing together. They did it without the input of their members. They tried to rush this fake timeline. And the whole thing crumbled. So uh, I would hope that Trump and his administration can impress upon Ryan and McConnell the need to get this thing done pretty quick and done right so they can move on to other stuff. Uh, But I totally agree that the handling of Obamacare repeal so far has been uh, uh, far less than optimal uh, to the point of being pretty disappointing. Sean Davis is co-founder of The Federalist. Check out his latest on TheFederalist.com. Sean, thanks for making the time for us. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, team 844-900-2825. We are going to hit a break and we'll be right back. Got an update for you on the whole Ann Coulter speech situation. Uh, she She's not speaking. You know that already. Um, but they decided to show up at the place she was going to speak in Berkeley. And there was uh, there there were protesters converging there anyway are, are they still there right now as we like yeah r- right now it's a it's a few hours uh, earlier on the west coast than it is here uh they're squaring off uh on the berkeley campus despite the fact that Anne is there I, I guess they figure that they have national attention and so why not act like a bunch of maniac crybabies on campus and uh and get into some stuff anyway i think police have made a couple arrests here i'm just looking at the uh looking at the updates police have made a few arrests somebody was carrying a knife on campus they had some of them wearing helmets with shields and padding uh oh gosh this is uh this is not not good for this is not not a good look for college campuses this is not the way it's supposed to be everybody um but this is how it is i also saw that the um, 82nd Avenue of the Roses parade was canceled. This is in Port- Portland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah, who's a producer here, she she knows about this. Um, th- this is th- they canceled this parade because there were threats. Once again, there were threats of violence. Okay, so 
Um, quote, no, this is from PortlandMercury.com, which I assume is like the paper up there. I don't know. I was in Portland once. It's a, uh, it's a funky place. Good food. It's pretty in parts, but I can imagine the, I, I think Bernie Sanders is too conservative for Portland. I, I think that, I think that's a fair statement based on my, my limited exposure to, to Portland. And, uh, I have seen two episodes. Yeah, the Rose Festival is apparently a big deal. Okay. Um, I've seen... Two episodes of the show Portlandia, one in which the uh, the main guy Fred Armisen um, wants to know where the chicken he's going to eat was raised, what its name was. You know, did it have a, did it have a nice stable home growing up? This is the chicken he's going to eat, and then also the uh, bicyclist. We call him, I guess, a cyclist, right? A cyclist who's screaming at everybody and is very militant about the uh, bicycle lane. That's a thing here in New York City too. I don't know where you are across the country, but some of the people, some of the people that ride around on the bicycles need to chill, and they need to not almost knock down old ladies and small children all the time. I, I know, I know the bike lane is your your space, guys, but some of you just need to tone that down a little bit. It gets a little aggressive in the bike lane. Okay, but back to the uh, the main story here. The the updates of of uh, Berkeley looks like there will be. Um, I don't know. There'll, there'll be some nonsense going on over there. It's not really clear at this point in time um, if it's not not really clear how bad it'll get. But they know that the entire country is watching, and so they figure that they'll get into some stuff now. Uh, I remember being on campus, and there was uh, a a Bush is, is essentially Bush is a Nazi rally on campus led by a mark a very nice uh, he was one of the professors who was brought in to assess my thesis defense um, but he's very nice gentleman a Marxist though an open Marxist and he was leading a it was about the fascism of the Bush administration this is not this is important to keep in mind this is not new the notion that the Republicans are fascists and Nazis is not in any way shape or form new um, it's a repeat. It's a retread of what we saw before. I remember being on campus, and this is post nine eleven, by the way. That was a moment that I, I that was the moment I should say when the notion that I had been living with for a long time that left and right, Democrat, Republican, conservative, progressive, uh, that they we just had different ideas about what the best policy outcome was, but we all want what was best for the country. After nine eleven, I realized it wasn't true. After 9-11, I saw uh, from fellow students and particularly from some of the professors that they had a, a deep-seated uh, hatred for American foreign policy. Uh, they thought America was a, a, a rotten and racist country because of its past and still to this day. And there was a lot of sentiment that America, got, and I know it's, it's a horrifying thing to say, and it was certainly terrible to be around, a lot of them took the approach that... Uh, this is what this is what you get, America. There, there were professors who, that was definitely the attitude. I remember one professor at the only all school gathering we had after only all school gathering went to my entire time in college was after uh, the day of nine eleven. I should say, uh, we gathered us all together and said, "This is what happens when you make people angry." That was the day of, and we had just mem- members of the college community had. Lost family members uh, killed in the towers, and yet we were being told this is what happens when you make people angry. It was, it was when we saw that we were no longer all on the same team in ways that really mattered. Um, there were some who 
were rooting for the destruction of the country. And that continued on in different ways. Um, and, and to be on a campus, this is when I went from having a conservative outlook on a lot of things to wanting to be in this fight of conservatism or uh, p- patriotism, uh, trying to defend the country, not just against terrorists, which I then went and did to the best of my ability at the CIA, but also to try to win this argument uh, about, well, it's many different arguments, but it all comes down to whether you think this country is something special and worth preserving and and uh, worthy of, of elevation instead of denigration. So, on, yeah, I remember on campus seeing some of these really radical uh, gatherings and protesters. I, I remembered the... Uh, he was a visiting professor from Harvard. I forget it. I'm forgetting his name right now. But he led a foreign policy forum after 9-11. And a student stood up and said, and I still to this day have a hard time uh, just imagining in what world these people are living in. They're, they're at a small private college, costs about 50000 and change a year to go to and has an acceptance rate of less than one in five. And they are, uh, they're standing up there and the, the professor is taking questions from the audience. And I had been sitting there and I was known at this point on campus to be a little bit of a conservative rabble rouser. Um, and and I, I took a, well, I'll tell you about the class American right later. But somebody said, you know, we shouldn't overreact. This is in response to 9-11. This is maybe a month or two afterwards. We shouldn't overreact because, you know, America has 300 million people. So we could really suffer an, a 9-11 style attack every day. And, and it would it's not like it would destroy this country because we have so many people. And I, I was thinking, and this is a tough statement to make and, and really be sure. But even at the time, and this is back when I was in college, this is a while ago. It's like, that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's definitely in the running for the for the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I remember this professor, this visiting professor from Harvard, saying, effect, effectively, more or less, um, I I can see where you're going with that, and I think that's I think that's a very valid point. And I was like, huh? what? What, what? What do you mean that's a valid point? That's that is. I'm sitting here. I'm a student. I'm an undergrad, and I'm thinking this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I've got a professor who's and not just dumb, but also really, really, uh, you know, soulless and inflammatory and, and, and nasty and just wrong on, on every level, on every level. And I would think that a, a professor would want to take this opportunity to get a student to not be so, so just insanely, utterly, completely wrong, stupid and immoral in, in their judgments and in their approach to, to foreign policy matters. Um, but this was, it it was happening then. And, and I just, I revert back to it in my head because the, the seeds of Antifa and shutting down speech and professors writing these, these quizzling, pathetic hand wringing on the one side, on the other side. Oh, what about, what about, you know, oppressed groups and how do we defend their feelings and all of that stuff that we're seeing now, whether it's at this uh, and the end result of it at Berkeley and with the shutdown of this uh, march in, in Portland because of threats of violence by Antifa protesters there. Um, all of this has been in the works for a long time. It's been it's been happening. And there's a part of me that would like to think that we're we've now reached that juncture where it's just too much. 
where sane people, rational, reasonable, well-intentioned Americans will have such a revulsion against this that it will uh, cause a shakeup on campuses and that this will change. I'd like to think that will happen here, um, but I wouldn't bet on it. And this is, if we don't push back very hard against this whole anti-speech, liberal fascist mentality, it will spread even further and higher in our country than it already has. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, team. I find it fascinating that we are told these days that a wall doesn't work. Now, I know that for this round, uh, the administration has backed off of the demand for budgeting for a wall, or at least the beginning of a wall, on our southern border. Wall, barrier, fence, all of the above. Uh, But I I do think that philosophically, uh, we are getting into the realm of unreality when people say things like a wall won't work. Well, it all depends on what your definition of work may be. If one is trying to say that a wall is perfect, well, of course, then it doesn't succeed in the mission that a wall is not sufficient to the task of securing our border in and of itself. But that's never been what great walls, barriers, fences, any and all of the above have entailed. There have been forces that are arrayed at the wall. There are guard towers. There's much more than just a wall, of course. And so a wall is one of uh, many aspects of security. But I thought it would be Interesting to just take a few moments to think about a a history of walls and how this is one of the oldest forms of defensive structure. It really is the oldest form of defensive structure in in human history. Uh, Building a wall as a defensive fortification or as a means of protecting a city or, yes, of keeping out invaders, uh, keeping out uh, the enemy or just keeping people out from... Uh, the neighboring country, all of all of these are things that uh, have been, well, walls have been used for these purposes. Um, and to believe that walls don't matter is to believe that the physical world makes no difference. I mean, there are those who wrongly think that today geography makes no difference in the modern world. Uh, they come up with much more complicated reasons for the trouble of central governance in, say, Afghanistan. Uh, it's not about its terrain. It's not that the uh, Hindu Kush mountains come down through the center of the country like a giant dinosaur spine. No, it's it's that there's a, a lack of uh, civil society and a, and a whole bunch of uh, social science reasons why the country is ungovernable and and continues to be, uh, from the perspective of at least the West, uh, almost impossible to have a functioning central government. Uh, they don't want to believe that it's about, when I mean they, you know, the, the so-called smart set, the intelligentsia in this country, they don't want to believe that geography, uh, terrain, can make that much of a difference. And when I point out that whether it's in Scotland or Southeast Asia with the Hmong uh, or other places around the world where there are highlanders, there are those who resist centralized government and who can do so with some degree of success, and it's because of the terrain. 
The central government has trouble controlling high ground. Uh, geography is a feature of the physical world. It is our uh, terrain, and it makes a difference. And walls are really among the earliest ways that human beings shaped terrain to their advantage, right? It is a man-made terrain. That is what a wall is. And so to think that a wall somehow doesn't matter or doesn't have an effect is, is just silly. Walls also have a psychological effect. It's not just about the security impact. And there are, of course, different kinds of walls. There are border walls, there are defensive walls, ramparts. Uh, and when you look at it in, in antiquity, the history of wall building is largely tied to the history of civilization itself. Um, you could even say that a, a history of walls would be a history of the progression of civilization um, because the wall that surrounds, whether it was made of wood and it was a simple fence or all the way to the tremendous walled cities of Constantinople uh, and before that Troy and name Jericho, name a, name a great city of antiquity, it had a wall. Now, I know those are defensive fortifications and not a border wall. Um, but before I get, so before I get too deep into the discussion about um, about defensive fortifications and the walls that uh, play a role in that or the walls that are necessary for that, we could talk about the more famous uh, border walls. I, I will exclude for our purposes, for example, the, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the remains of the of the, the temple, because that's not. That's a wall of a building, right? That's not a wall that's built as a defensive uh, fortification. Um, but if we look at the most famous border walls in history, you can go all the way back to ancient Samaria. Um, and whenever I think of Sumerians, I think of that part of Ghostbusters where he's like, Sumerian, Babylonian, God, mumbo-jumbo. They're talking about the ancient gods that somehow turned into ghosts or something in Ghostbusters. But I digress. Uh 2,000 years before Christ, uh, the Sumerians built a wall to keep out uh, the, uh, the neighbors that they didn't like, um, and the Amorites next door uh, were supposed to be kept out. But unfortunately, uh, the Amorites were able to overcome it. But they, 2,000 years B.C., there's, there was a wall built to keep out a neighboring uh, aggressive tribe by the, by the Sumerians. Um, of course, then you can move on to among the most famous walls of all time, sort of the Great Wall, uh, the Long Wall of Athens, which was the means of connecting uh, the great city-state of Athens uh, to its ports. One of the uh, deficiencies of construction that Athens suffered from is that Athens, uh, ancient Athens, was, se was landlocked, separated from the sea. It had two uh, excellent harbors, though, at Piraeus and Phalerum, uh, but of course, if you are suffering from a siege and you are cut off from, uh, you're cut off from the ocean, you're cut off from the Mediterranean. Um, that doesn't do you much good. So they constructed barriers all along the stretch between the city of Athens, um, and this was in the in the fifth century BC between the city of Athens uh, and its ports on its coast. So that then, whenever there was a siege and siege warfare was. A, a constant in uh, ancient Greece between these uh, warring city-states, uh, they could have access to the sea, which made it a lot harder to, well, starve them out and take the city. So building walls was it was an ingenious, an ingenious uh, decision in the 5th century B.C., worked 
quite well. Um, another wall near and dear to my heart, Hadrian's Wall, just because I like history. Uh, Hadrian's Wall is around uh, 120 A.D. Uh, the emperor, the ro- ancient Roman emperor Hadrian, created a stone wall. The remnants of it are still up. You can see some of the uh, some of uh, what was built. It, it has stayed. Some of the ruins of this wall because they were trying to protect Roman Britain from the rather warlike tribes, the uh, barbarians, uh, as the Romans thought of them, like the Picts that were in northern England and Scotland. Oh, that's right. Highland people avoiding central government authority. It's not like it started with uh, kilts and bagpipes, my friends. This was the case in the fr- in the first and second century uh, A.D. So that wall was about uh, 10 feet by 15 feet, and it had forts, of course. Any good wall that's going to serve as a, a barrier between peoples has got to have a manned component to it because, yes, a ladder can get you over a wall or a rock wall you'll just climb over. But it does still serve a purpose, as I said, psychological as well as tactical. Uh, and it creates that sense of where Roman territory stopped and the barbarian territory started. Uh, a physical barrier allows for that, and, and it, it is a manifestation of the perception of state control as well as being a, a defensive fortification. Interesting, by the way, the, the original term barbarian comes from ancient uh, ancient Greek, and it's just those—it was a reference to barbar. They, they spoke uh, something other than Greek, people outside of, of, the, uh, of the Greek peninsula. And later, the Romans would eventually refer to Greeks as barbarians, which was kind of funny to them because the Romans— stole Greek gods, Greek culture. Uh, the Romans were good at fighting and efficiency and engineering, and they borrowed a whole lot of the other stuff from the Greeks. But that's a discussion, I suppose, for another time. So back to Hadrian's Wall, very famous wall, and it worked reasonably well uh, for a while, um, but then it uh, th- then it, it was not enough. Um, so they, uh, they actually they moved a barrier even further called the Antonine Wall, um, but eventually the Romans, as you know, evacuated. And there's a movie, uh, King Arthur, with Clive Owen that deals with Hadrian's Wall and this this period in in the... Uh, it's really the height of the expansion of ancient Rome. They made it all the way up into England. Then you have the most famous wall of all time. Uh, people always talk about how it's visible from space. Uh, the Great Wall of China. Um, and it's really a series of walls that were connected together. Uh, the, it began in the 3rd century B.C., uh, but the sections that you know best were not—they didn't get constructed until the four, between the 14th and, and 17th centuries. Uh, they were set up to uh, protect the Ming dynasty from nomads. And those of you who know your uh, a- Asian history know that uh, Asian nomads, in, this, in the case of uh, the Mongols— Became the most powerful dynasty, uh, well, really of of a in the in the post Roman pre modern era. I don't think anybody ever had as much territory as the Khans, uh, nor was anyone responsible for quite as much carnage, destruction, uh, murder, and well, a whole lot of other stuff too. Some of it good. There there are some that try to rehabilitate the uh, the Khans as be, uh, they created a postal service, and thanks to them, we have rugs and. Paper became more widespread. I'm familiar with all of that, but they also had habits like rolling up people that stole in, in a carpet and trampling them with horses to death. And 
there, there was some rough stuff or, or setting up a, uh, a post on a wagon and any able-bodied man in a city that they took that was taller than that post, they would uh, cut off his head. That was a way to make an impression. Um, so the Great Wall of, of China is, uh, is a series of defensive fortifications uh, that for a long time were effective in part. I mean, they, obviously a wall is not a cure-all and no one says that it is. Um, but it was the largest man-made object in the world, um, and it did not stop some of the uh, the nomads from making their way in, and it did not even save the Ming Dynasty. But anyway, the Great Wall of China, of course, uh, constructed over the course of, of a millennium. Um, then there's the Great Wall. Then there are the walls of <laughs> the Great Walls, the walls of Constantinople, uh, one of the greatest cities of uh, antiquity. Um, it had 14 uh, miles of barricades of walls around the city. Uh, and they included a moat, and they were uh, the inner wall was forty feet tall and fifteen feet thick. Uh, so they that, that's what kept Constantinople a great city for so long. It was very difficult, and it wasn't until uh, the Ottomans in fourteen fifty three, when they brought gunpowder to bear, that finally the city was taken. But the Byzantine Empire held out much longer than it would have otherwise because of not just Constantinople's incredible. Uh, strategic location at the well, at the mouth of where the Mediterranean uh, turns into, uh, where the Bosphorus, where the Mediterranean and the uh, Black Sea meet. So it's clearly a very valuable real estate, uh, but also because of the tremendous walls built around the city. And then on the uh, not so uh, on the not celebrated side of things, of course, you have the Berlin Wall, which separated people in East and West Germany. Uh, it was erected in 1961. And it had guard towers and electrified fences, and people were killed trying to cross over, and it separated people from a city. But it, it was effective at keeping a population uh, separated from another population. So I just think that the history of walls, to me, is, is fascinating, and, and I could do a whole other segment, and maybe I, I will later on, on, on how you look at the uh, walled fortifications and they are necessary for civilization without a walled village without and you go back into uh, medieval times the feudal era without the ability to create walls around a city or at least have a walled keep to defend people in the village from becoming overrun by marauders and bandits or a neighboring warlord and killing everyone uh, you would you would not have really been able to have the progression of civilization um, well anywhere but in, in the in the western world particularly so walls are essential. Walls are important. And they've been around a long time. And despite what uh, Democrats want to say these days, walls do work. They are not perfect, but they serve a purpose. And it's not just about the physical barrier. It's also a psychological manifestation of a border between states. It is the physical location where uh, one power gives way to another. Uh, so anyway, I just want to talk about walls a little bit there as we get ready for, uh, well, it won't be, it'll be a while, I think, before it gets talked about in the context of a budget again. Anyway, team, I'm going to hit a quick break here, and uh, I'll be right back. Stay with me. Just a quick note before any of you tweeted me about this uh, or sent me Facebook messages. I, I know you can't see the Great Wall from space. I said that people say that it can be seen from space. It's NASA, uh, NASA's official government webpage, they even have a little section devoted to it no no even from a low earth orbit you cannot the naked eye cannot see the 
the Great Wall of China. But uh, people always say that. It's the, it's the only man-made? Nope, nope, nope. False, false, false. Um, oh, by the way, I also have some uh, updates for you on the speech that did take place. Uh, I believe Ann Coulter's draft of her speech was read by... Uh, read by some folks out in uh, California, uh, some conservatives. And Lauren Southern, whom we've had on the show before, I see on her Twitter feed, she she looks right now like she is in like an extreme or X Games competition. She's like a helmet on, backpack, GoPro cam. I guess she was ready for things to get particularly... Spicy out there on the on the uh, grounds of Berkeley, Um, but they said uh, I see on Twitter here they're saying that nothing particularly bad happened and uh, everything was uh, okay. So they read their speech and didn't really get too out of hand. So there you go. Um, Still a loss for free speech in the sense that you know Anne wasn't able to give her speech and I Anne has a much bigger profile than the other individuals who are uh, out there who were trying to make a point of reading Anne's speech for her, which is nice uh, of them. But no Anne, no riot, I think, is the way way that this was going to go down, and that seems to be what happened. Um, But it's it's just amazing that this is the level things have gotten to in this country when it comes to free speech. All right, I want to also talk to you about something else real quick here. Barack Obama got another $400,000 speaking fee uh, for hanging out with A&E Networks at the Pierre Hotel here in New York City. He was interviewed... Um, by presidential, anyway, it doesn't really matter, does it? $400,000, $60 million book deal, $400,000 of speech. Obama's going to be very rich, very powerful Democrat. He's going to be the de facto leader of the Democrat Party for at least the next two years, maybe even beyond that. Uh, so those of you who think that you've heard your last Obama speech, oh no, my friends, I just come to bring you the news. I come to bring you the truth. And uh, you will definitely... You will definitely be hearing more from uh, Barack Obama. Hopefully, you won't have to pay him four hundred grand, though, because that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of cash. Um, please do check out uh, BuckSexton.com. You get a chance. We are doing more and more on the site. It is up and running. It's uh, the the online home of the Freedom Hut. And also uh, tomorrow, we I am going to be out tomorrow because even once in a while, even I need to take. A, uh, a day off, and we'll have uh, Ken Matthews in for me, talk radio host Ken Matthews, really nice guy. He's going to be at the helm here in uh, the Freedom Hunt for the day, and then I'll be back with you all on Monday, which I'm very much looking forward to. I'm going to go get some sun this weekend. I kind of need that. Spend some time with the girlfriend, get some sun. That needs to happen. So um, I will uh, entrust your, I'll entrust all the freedom spreading to uh, all of you, Team Buck and Ken tomorrow here on the Freedom Hunt. Uh, please download the podcast and do me one favor, as I like to ask you. Uh, please pass the buck, and by that I mean tell a friend about the show. Tell them to listen on the iHeart Radio app, Buck Sexton with America Now. Tell them to subscribe on iTunes. Till Monday, my friends. Shield time.